Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we come to you tonight knowing that you have provided everything for our Christian lives. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who has become for us the living bread. And we know that we can feast upon him. And he's the fountain at which we drink. And Father, we just thank you. He's promised that those who are hungry and those who are thirsty, they shall abound, they shall be full, and their, their thirst shall be quenched. Father, we thank you so much. You've promised to provide in every way for us. And Father, we just come tonight to the fount of all life, even the Lord himself, and we celebrate his presence with us in the midst. And we thank you that everywhere he goes, you are glorified, Father, for he glorifies you. And we're filled with the Spirit which the Lord has given to us, and the Spirit glorifies Jesus. And so, Father, we are looking tonight for a glorification of all that you are and all that your Son has done. Father, will you come and just bless each one of us, bless our hearts, bless our minds, bless our spirits, that, Father, we should receive wonderful truth, and that, Father, from the things we learn, we might be challenged to go on into greater depth with you. I want to thank you we can never come to the end, because there is no end. You are infinite. And therefore, we can always be full, and yet we can also be hungering for more things. And we can be fully satisfied and yet thirsty for deeper things. Tonight, our heart's desire is we might receive those deeper things. Oh, Father, just come and may the love of Jesus pour upon us in a wonderful way that we might know his fullness and the freedom of the Spirit even in the midst. In the name of Jesus, we ask it, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, in the very first talk of this series, which I think was just three talks ago, I outlined the general history of what I would call tonight the plan of redemption, the glorious plan that God instituted when Adam was created and which will end when finally the earth itself is removed and when God establishes a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, we saw that plan coming into fruition, and we followed it through in simple phases. It's one plan, but there are different phases associated with the one plan. If you remember on that evening, after sketching it out in the most general terms and in the broadest possible terms, I then spent the whole evening talking about the first phase, the first 2,000 years, and we saw during that time how God worked on the earth. You remember, of course, that I called that talk the Tower of Babel, and we saw that when we reached the point at which man decided he was going to be independent of God, God then moved into the next phase of the plan of redemption, when he called Abraham and when he established his nation, his own chosen nation, on the face of the earth, the Jewish nation. And he raised them up as his special people. We've spent two talks, the last two, talking about that nation, talking about Israel, talking about the marvelous blessings that God promised to them, and last time, seeing the glorious truth that God yet has a purpose for his people Israel. Praise the Lord. Now, of course, we're ready now to pass through to the next phase, which is, of course, the secret part of God's plan, and we'll see why it's secret next time, the mysterious part of God's plan, which is the church of Jesus Christ.
But tonight I want to concentrate on the day that God decided that he would announce officially to Israel that their time was coming to an end, and also on exactly the same day to establish the next phase of his purpose, which is the church of Jesus Christ. The day, in other words, of Pentecost, as described in Acts chapter 2, which is the birthday of the church. All right, now that's what we're coming on to tonight. And I want to really concentrate on it so that we can understand what really happened on that particular day. Now let's get one fact firmly established in our minds before we begin, and it's a fact that I've talked about time and time again in the last course. And that is this, that when Jesus came to the earth, he came primarily as King and Messiah to Israel. That was his purpose. Now, of course, because they rejected him, the glory of his work passed on to all the Gentiles. But he came primarily as the King and Messiah of Israel. That's the point. And when he came and he preached for three and a half years, it was with Israel in his mind. John the Baptist had exactly the same purpose. It was to make straight the, the way to prepare the way before the Lord should come, so that the people of Israel should turn to the one who was the King of peace and the King of glory. And Jesus came and he preached. And you know, he was diligent and he was faithful to his own calling. He wanted it to be so that the Jews would never be able to claim that they never heard the message. And for seven years, three and a half under John the Baptist and three and a half under Jesus Christ, the message went out loud and clear to Israel. Your king is now among you. Now we need that piece of information because without it, some of the things that Jesus did during his life seem rather harsh. Do you remember the time when the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus? She was a Canaanite ethnically and they, the Canaanites were called dogs. But she came from a part of the Middle East called Syrophoenicia. And she came up to Jesus. Incidentally, that's why in one gospel she's called a Syrophoenician woman, and in another gospel she's called a Canaanite. You can have the two together. It's not a contradiction. She came to Jesus, and she had a request to make of him. And after she'd made her request, Jesus says something that surprises a lot of people. He turns to her and he says, It is not lawful, he says, that I should give the children's food unto dogs. Now that seems extremely harsh. But what he was saying is, he had come to the Jews first of all, and what he had was nourishment for the children of Israel. And here was a woman who did not belong to that nation, and she wanted some of the blessing. It was also, of course, a test of this woman's faith. Now some people would have said, oh well, that's it. And they would have walked away really downcast. The Syrophoenician woman, gritting her faith, turned to Jesus and she said, Ah, true. But she said, But Lord, even the dogs eat crumbs that fall from the master's table. And by saying that, she was saying, I'm not asking for bread. You are so magnificent and powerful, just one little crumb from you is all I need. And that is sufficient to answer every problem that I have. You see? But Jesus was saying, and in front of all the Jews, Beloved Israel, I have come foremostly and first of all to you. He not only did that himself, he also gave command to his disciples to do the same. 
In Matthew 10, he says, do not go among the Gentiles, he says. You disciples go and preach the message, but don't go to the Gentiles. Go rather to the lost house of Israel. His purpose was to come, first of all, to the Jews. And so he did. And yet, they rejected him. They saw the miracles, they saw the signs of his messiahship, which we've studied in the past, and they rejected him on every score. And we have in Luke chapter 13 a parable that Jesus speaks about his own ministry to the Jews. So could we turn to Luke and chapter 13 and beginning verse 6. At this particular point, he has been ministering solidly for three whole years to the Jewish nation. And so far, he has had no response whatsoever. And to warn them that their time is coming to an end, he speaks these words. A parable, you remember, is a something laid alongside something else. And here Jesus takes a simple story, he lays it alongside the truth to demonstrate the truth that he's speaking about. Now, there are three characters in this particular parable. You've got the man who owns the vineyard, the master, a certain man, as he's described. Who's that? That's Jesus himself. You've then got a man who is called the dresser of the vineyard, and that is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And then you've got a fig tree, which, as we saw last time, is a reference to the Jewish nation. So in other words, this is a conversation between Jesus and the Holy Spirit concerning the Jewish nation. Look what he says, verse 6. He spake also this parable. A certain man, that's himself, had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, so that instead of the whole land being occupied with vines, one area is cordoned off and there is a fig tree growing in this particular place. And he came, and of course, as he was giving up valuable land for this particular fig tree, he wanted some fruit. He came and he sought fruit thereon, and he found none. And Israel had been growing from the time of Abraham, and now the master has come and he is looking for fruit, and for three years he has looked for fruit upon this fig tree. Then it says, verse 7, then he said unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree for three whole years. And I don't find any, he says. I find none. So my remedy is, cut it down, he says. Why cumbereth it the ground? To cumbereth means it takes up valuable space. Why is it wasting that bit of land? when it could be available for another vine. So he says, cut it down, this is my instruction to you. Now, the dresser of the vineyard now comes in, and here you've got a dialogue between two members of the Godhead. And he comes along, he says, one moment. Verse 8, And he, answering, said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. Right? Another year, a fourth year, is given to this fig tree before it's going to be cut down. Verse 9, And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. 
And God in his grace gave Israel one more year during which they could repent and bear the fruit of repentance as far as he was concerned. And the year began. And the Holy Spirit gave more miracles and more teaching and more signs in that year than he ever gave in the the three years that went before. And the result? The result was that halfway through the year, Israel decided it was time to murder their own king who'd come among them. And halfway through the fourth year, the Lord Jesus himself suffered at the hands of unrighteous men and suffered in the most appalling manner, was degraded in the most awful manner, and died upon the cross of Calvary. And the fig tree rose up against its master, and the master died. Do you know, God's grace is so tremendous that he he even despite that, gave the fig tree, gave the nation Israel half a year more. Three and a half years had gone past up to the death of Jesus. There was half a year left during which the nation of Israel could repent. Now, of course, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day after he was crucified. And during that half year, it was the best year as far as Israel was concerned because their risen Lord now was among them and being testified to among them as not only the King of Israel but the risen and resurrected King of Israel. And you know, they still rejected. The last half a year which made up the four years was one of total rejection, total rejection and total rejection. On the very last day of the fourth year, God looking down from the heavens to see whether his nation would repent or no, he saw one of the most agonizing spectacles that he'd seen since the death of his son. On that last day of the fourth year, the Holy Spirit came upon a man called Stephen. And in front of the high priest, he stood up, and Stephen preached the same message that Jesus Christ had preached. You can read it for yourself in Acts 7. He went right through the history of Israel, right the way through it. And then he said, Jesus Christ is the Savior, he is the Messiah, and you've crucified him. And do you know what they did? With God looking on to see for signs of repentance, they picked up stones and they killed Stephen as well, the first Christian martyr. In other words, saying that even if Jesus had been alive, they would have killed him at the end of the fourth year. There was no repentance whatsoever as far as Israel was concerned. And we know that on that particular day, Israel was cut off because of unbelief and because of the hardness of their heart as far as God was concerned. Isn't it amazing, though, that God, in his foreknowledge, knew about their rejection? And the glorious truth is that when Jesus died, though the Jews put him to death and though the Romans were instrumental in putting him to death, he died on the exact day that God had planned for him to be the saviour of the whole world. On a day which is known in the Bible as the Feast of Passover. And I want to say this, that God in his grace to Israel had devised that even their calendar would preach the gospel to them. Marvellous. God had had said to Israel, Israel, I devise your calendar and here's my plan for your calendar. There are going to be seven major feasts in your year, right? There are going to be four in the spring and there are going to be three in the autumn and they'll be separated by about five or six months, right? And so God did. The seven feasts are as follows and it's worth noting them down. The four that were in the spring were, first of all, the Feast of Passover. 
That was followed directly by the second feast, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And at the same time came the third feast, which was the Feast of the First Fruits. All right? Then, seven weeks later, approximately, came the last of the four feasts, which was the Feast of Pentecost. Now, they were the ones in spring. The ones then to come in the autumn, and notice they were separated by quite a large uh, period of time, there were three. The first one was the Feast of Trumpets. The second one was the Day of Atonement. And the third one was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, there they were, two distinct groups of feasts. Okay, the first group, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost, they all, of course, commemorated things that occurred at the time of the Exodus. But the great thing was that God, by allowing Israel to keep them, was preaching what was going to happen to Jesus when he came for his first sojourn on this earth. That was what it was about. And every year, even though the Jews were in unbelief, they kept this part of the calendar. And the gospel was preached every time they did it. By the way, the autumnal feasts are going to be fulfilled when Jesus returns again in the second advent. And these have to do with not only the second advent of Jesus Christ, but the regathering of Israel, as we shall see at a, on a later occasion. All right? But let's have a look at these first four feasts, and let's see how they were fulfilled and how the Jews messed them up. Okay, the first one we've seen already. On the exact day when it should be held, the 14th and 15th day of the first month, Jesus Christ himself died on the cross of Calvary. It's interesting to note that at the time of the Exodus, at the Feast of Passover, they were told to take blood and put it on the lintel above the doorway so that it dripped down then and made a puddle on the threshold. And they were to put it on one lintel and on the other lintel, forming a sign of a cross right across the whole door. Very interesting that. It was Jesus, however, who was going to die on what it represented. So that was the first. In AD 33, Jesus died as the Passover. Let's go to number three next. You'll see why in a moment. This was the Feast of First Fruits. Now, what happened on the Feast of First Fruits? Well, this was the beginning of the grain harvest. Now, those of you who are farmers here will know full well that the first grain to become ripe is barley. Now, the priests used to look out of the window, and as soon as they saw a ripe barley field, they used to say, it is time for the, first, for the feast of first fruits. And they used to gather together, and the high priest used to go into the field. They used to take hold of a sheath of uh, of corn, you know, of the barley, take a knife and they used to chop it off at the bottom and carry away this uh, partic particular bundle of barley. And taking it then, they went through a ceremony. The ceremony was very easy. They took hold of this, uh, this uh, collection of stalks of barley and all they did, they just took it in their hands and they raised it up to heaven. It's called waving waving it up to heaven. Up it went into heaven, and then they brought it down again. And all they were doing, quite simply, they were giving God the glory for the harvest that was coming. They took it, they lifted it up, God, to you be the glory, and then they brought it down again, and the harvest had begun. Okay, how was that fulfilled in AD 33? Why? 
The day, which was the Feast of Firstfruits, was the day on which Jesus Christ rose as our firstfruits from the dead. And on that very day, what happened? Up Jesus came, and the first thing he did, of course, he walked in the garden and he saw Mary, who was crying. And he says to Mary, Mary! And she turns around and sees him. Oh, oh, you know, the, the, the love that filled her eyes. Rabboni, she says. Master, it's you. And I imagine her rushing forward. Now, as soon as she does that, Jesus said to her, Mary, don't touch me, please. Don't touch me. Stay, keep your distance. And some people, again, have thought that was callous. But Jesus gives the explanation. He says, you mustn't touch me because I haven't yet ascended to my Father. That's what he says. In other words, I am the first fruit. The first thing I've got to do is to be waved up into heaven. And then he says, I have not yet ascended. But go to my disciples and say, I am ascending today. I am ascending. Mary goes off and says, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus has appeared to me. He's risen from the dead. He won't be around yet because he's ascending. But he'll see you later on. Praise the Lord. All right, that's the price version coming out again. And Jesus, on the day that he rose from the dead, he went to heaven, he presented the glory to the Father, and then he came down to earth again. And you'll notice, on the evening of that, that day, he appears to the disciples. Just eight days later, he says to Thomas, Come on, Thomas, touch me. Put your hand into my side. Put your finger through the, the nail marks. Now, he was able to have physical contact with the people around. Why? He descended already. Oh yes, 40 days later he was going to be taken up into heaven. But the first time he went to heaven was on that first day of his resurrection as a fulfillment of first fruits. Now there are two feasts that in AD 33 were fulfilled. What about the Feast of Unleavened Bread then in AD 33? It's here that we start seeing the failure of Israel. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a feast of separation. You remember, it commemorated the time that they came out of Egypt and separated themselves from all that was Egyptian. And in AD 33, God was looking to Israel to see repentance for what they'd done to the Son of Glory. In that year, he wanted them to separate themselves from the crime that had just been perpetrated. That was his design. Do you know... The Jews, just after Jesus was crucified and have risen from the dead, they knew the truth about Jesus Christ. More so than at any other time in their history, at this time they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. How can I make such a statement as that? Very easy. You see, Jesus, as his ministry developed, he started saying incredible things. He told the whole of Jerusalem and the whole of the land of Israel, he said, by the way, I'm going to die, he said. And not just die, I'm going to be put to death by the high priests. You wait and see if I'm not. All right? And then he said to them, now, as that's going to come to pass, don't get all worried or anything. Just count one, two, three days, and I'm going to rise from the dead. All right? He says, I've told you beforehand. And then on he'd go to the next village, and he'd say the same. By the way, you don't believe in me now, but listen, something glorious is going to happen and this will lead you into salvation. I'm going to die, he said. Count one, two, three days and I'm going to rise from the dead. And they knew it. 
Do you know, the whole of Jerusalem was buzzing with that news. Jesus told. Millions of people in the land knew that Jesus was going to die and that he'd said he'd rise from the dead on the third day, not the fourth day or the fifth day, the third day. So much so, actually, did they know it, that the high priest, as soon as Jesus was dead, they went to the Romans and said, now look, this man has said, and the newspapers are full of it, you know, the media are absolutely, the whole of Jerusalem is buzzing with this news, that in three days he'd rise from the dead. Now we know those disciples, now awful they are, I know what they're going to do. On the third day, they'll go to the tomb, they'll steal the body away and say, there we are, Jesus has risen from the dead. So he says, so do you mind putting some soldiers outside the tomb, please? And the Romans say, no, that will be absolutely fine. Now, we don't know how many soldiers were there, but the word in Greek used uh, for that occasion actually suggests that there were several hundred troops camped outside uh, the grave. Marvelous. And you know, the people in the city must have thought, this is great, you know, because, of course, we know nothing's going to happen, but it means that there can be proof And do you know, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, the Romans could have stopped Christianity dead at that point. How? Because while everyone else was saying, well, has he risen? They could have taken the body of Jesus and they could have said, he has not risen. And they could have hung him on the balcony, Pilate's balcony, for everyone to see. And what happened? The morning came, and all of a sudden a buzz started going round. Jesus is alive. He said he'd rise on the third day, and he's risen on the third day. And the bus went round, and round the city it went. And so they rushed to the Romans. Well, where's the body? Come on, get the body out. And the Romans didn't have the body. But what about all the troops that were outside? Oh, well, you see, those disciples, they did something terrible. Our troops, which are guarding the tomb, they all fell asleep. All 200 of them, whatever number it was. (laughs) And you know, those sneaky disciples, they came up and they crept through the camp and as silently as the grave, they rolled the heavy stone out from the tomb, opened it up, they took the body of Jesus and they went away and we were so fast asleep, we just didn't hear them. Now do you know, the Jews, hearing that type of message, and that's the message that they were given, they knew Jesus had risen from the dead. Because they knew something about Roman troops, and that is they're very proud, and they were crack soldiers. They were the tops. And you know, those crack soldiers were very proud of their duty. In fact, there was a death penalty for any Roman soldier who fell asleep on duty. Now, that should have meant 200 people being put to death. And as the Jews waited, not one Roman soldier was put to death either. In other words, when the Feast of Unleavened Bread came, those Jews knew that Jesus, as he had said, had risen from the dead. And their reaction, my beloved, they rejected. They would not receive it. They preferred rather to stay in their unbelief. And here is God looking down on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the people of Israel were still rejecting what was an obvious gospel message, that Jesus was who he said he was, and he proved it by rising from the dead. And that's it. So in other words, the Passover was fulfilled, first fruits was fulfilled, unleavened bread, it was not fulfilled. All right, what about Pentecost, this feast? First of all, what was Pentecost? It came seven weeks after first fruits, the Feast of Weeks, as it was called, seven weeks after first fruits. And do you know what it was? It was the end of the harvest. First fruits was the beginning. Pentecost was the end of the harvest. And on that day, the final bit of wheat 
had been gathered into the barn, and they took some of the wheat, they ground it into flour, they mixed a cake, and made two loaves, and the, before anyone else tasted of the harvest, they took these two loaves, and they offered them up to God. In other words, all that's been done in the seven weeks that have gone past, now you can have a taste and come into the benefit of the harvest. And what was God's purpose for Israel at Pentecost? I'll tell you what it was. At Pentecost, he wanted to bless the Jews. At Pentecost, he wanted to bring them into all of the blessings that were theirs by right and that they had come into because of their repentance in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's what he wanted. Actually, what had happened? That they had not repented. They had refused to repent during unleavened bread. And the result was, when God was ready to bless them at the Feast of Pentecost, the Jews were not ready to receive the blessing that God had. Let's have a look at the blessing that God had for Israel. It is talked of in the book of Joel and chapter 2. The book of Joel and chapter 2... And I'm beginning verse 27. Now some of this is couched in vague terms because God knew, of course, beforehand that Israel would reject. All right? But he couldn't say that to Israel at the time. But we'll begin with verse 27 of the book of Joel. Joel 2, 27. And you shall know, he says, that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else and my people shall never be confused. Now that's his promise. You will know, and you know up to the Feast of uh, Pentecost, they did know as well that the Lord had been in the land. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward, and there's a vague term, it shall come to pass after you know that I'm in the land, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Wonderful. Notice the blessing. He won't just pour out his Spirit a little bit. It's going to be on all flesh. All people who are alive are going to receive, and specifically all Jewish people, are going to receive the fullness of the Spirit. All flesh will receive it. That's the promise. And then he says, and because you're all filled with the Spirit, guess what you're going to do? Three things. And here's what you, you will do. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So there's going to be prophecy on that day. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. There's going to be prophecy, there's going to be dreams, and there's going to be vision. Visions given on that particular day. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And notice what it says. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It's your sons and your daughters. It doesn't matter whether you're young or you're old. Right, your old men, your young men. It doesn't matter whether you're upper class or lower class, even upon the, the maid servants, you know, the handmaids. I will pour out my spirit in those days. Not only that, but before it comes to pass, there is going to be fireworks for everyone to see. There are going to be geophysical signs in the universe above, in the heavens above, and on the earth below. So it's going to be unmistakable the day that I bless Israel. And look what he says, verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens, asteroids, meteorites, comets, goodness knows what else, other things going on in the heavens, so that everyone will look up and they'll just be amazed and awestruck with what is going on. And in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, 
The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered or saved. It's the same word. There it is. And notice the last bit, talking about the restoration of Israel. For in Mount Zion, where's that? That's Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now that's what God had planned for the day of Pentecost. Great. And so, we have a look at the day of Pentecost. Don't turn to it yet. First of all, where, what about the geophysical manifestations on the day of Pentecost? Were there any? Not a peep. There were no comets, as far as we know. There were no asteroids. There were no meteorites. The sun was not darkened. In fact, it was when Jesus died on the cross seven weeks earlier, that was the only time that the sun became dark for a period of three, three hours. And that was it. The moon turned to blood, didn't happen. Fire, no. Smoke, no. Blood, no. Oh dear, oh dear. All right, well what about the other? But the others came to pass, didn't they? I'm afraid they didn't. Do you know, it's scrupulous, the silence in Acts chapter 2. You look for the word prophesying there. You know? No mention of it. There was no prophecy on the day of Pentecost. There were no dreams or visions as far as we know. Some things happened. God's saying something. In fact, do you know that most people would not have connected Joel 2 with the day of Pentecost had not Peter stood up and proclaimed this is the fulfillment of that which Joel the prophet spoke. You couldn't tell by what was going on. Let's have a look at Acts chapter 2, and let's see if we can understand what God was doing. Acts and chapter 2, and we'll begin verse 1. Now, you see, the point is that most Christians have thought of the day of Pentecost only in terms of the church. And they haven't realized that the Feast of Pentecost is a Jewish feast. First, we've got to consider the Jews. The Bible says that. First the Jews, then the Gentiles. How many sermons have you heard on this particular passage talking about the blessings that tongues are and all the rest? You know? Fine. It's wonderful to have talks like that. But beloved, Israel comes first. And what we've got to ask is, this was a day for Israel, and where was Israel when this day came? Let's read it through. Verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, and by the way, notice, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, the literal day of Pentecost, yes indeed, the literal day of Pentecost, because God fulfills his word literally to the day. And God has a calendar which he will not break, and he keeps to the calendar. And when the day of Pentecost came up, God knew he had an appointment, and he went and he, he kept his side of the bargain. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, who's that? 120 of the believers, were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. Not fire, it looked like fire. That's what it means. And it sat upon each of them. Isn't it interesting that fire is a symbol of judgment? Fascinating. And suddenly they see this cloud appear in the room, and it looks like fire, and suddenly they see streaks coming out of it, and it lands on each one of their heads. 
judgment. They must have thought, judgment, judgment. And what happened then? Look what it said. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they began to prophesy and to dream dreams and see visions. No, they didn't. They began to speak with tongues. That's languages. It's not ecstatic blah, 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 by the way, as the New English Bible has it. It's not ecstatics. It's the normal word for language. They began to speak other languages, other than Aramaic and other than Hebrew, coming out of their mouths, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So tongues came. Well, where in Joel 2 do you read about tongues? You don't. Something's wrong somewhere. Very interesting. All right, there it is. And look, and then it goes on to say, well, there were Jews from every nation under heaven gathered there, and of course God used these languages to preach the gospel. Let's just go on to verse 12. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning, by the way. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes verbatim what the prophet Joel says, going right through to verse 21. Right, now in verse 21, uh, let's just read it, and let's see, he misses out the very last section of verse 32 of Joel 2. Verse 21, It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, full stop. Except Joel goes on to say, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now what is all this about? And why did he miss out that last section? Do you know why? Because God came on time. The trouble was, Israel had missed the boat. When God came to keep the appointment, Israel had not repented, and they were out of fellowship as far as God was concerned. And what God did, knowing he couldn't bless Israel because they weren't in the state of repentance, and that's why Peter misses off that last half of the verse. It couldn't be fulfilled there. Israel wasn't ready. But instead of that, the Holy Spirit proves that he kept the appointment even though they didn't. That's what it's all about. And the day of Pentecost proves God is faithful to his word. It was Israel that had let the plan down, as it were. This was marvelously graceful of the Lord. If I'd been the Lord, I wouldn't have bothered to show up, you know. But the Lord, in his grace, showed Israel, I'm faithful. And that is why Peter says, no, what's happened to us is what should have happened to you. That's what it's all about. The Holy Spirit has been, and he's done marvelous work. But you've missed the boat. How do I know that he says that? Because of the message that he goes on to preach. He preaches to the men of Israel, and he says, this Jesus, you've crucified him, he says. He's raised, been raised from the dead. You've rejected him, totally. If you go right through to um, verse 33 and onwards, this is how he finishes his message, talking about uh, verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. 
For David is not ascended into heaven, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Footstool. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel... Do you see the emphasis? It doesn't say the church here. Right? The church was blessed. It came into existence, yes, on the day of Pentecost. The message was preached to Israel. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And there it is. That's the message to Israel on the day of Pentecost. You're on the way out, and today I officially announce it. All right. Why tongues? Why should God use the sign of tongues to say it? And did the Jews realize what tongues meant? The answer is they did. Because there's a prophecy given in the Old Testament concerning tongues. Only one, but one's enough, as Winston Churchill said. Praise God. Let's turn to it and let's study it. This is in Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah and chapter 28 and beginning verse 9. Isaiah has been preaching, and he has been preaching, and he has been preaching. And in the most beautiful uh, Hebrew that he knew. And do you know what they'd done? They'd rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected. Until finally, he lifts his hands to heaven, and he says, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do with this people. And look what he says, verse 9. Whom shall he teach knowledge? Lord, who is there around who will receive the teaching that I'm giving and allow your spirit to teach? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And there is exasperation in his voice as he says it. And I think most Bible teachers at times have felt the same exasperation when they know full well that the church of Jesus Christ is still not in the fullness of the word of God, but still playing with the pebbles on the beach. You know, satisfied with the ice lollies that are given out occasionally instead of really going deeply into the Word of God. And look what he says. Then he answers his own question. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. And of course, for us it means any Christian who has started off on the milk of the Word of God and grown into fullness. To Isaiah, however, he's saying the only people that give me any attention are the children. And that's because they're all wrapped up in swaddling bands and pointing in my direction. You see? And that's what he's saying. All the others are gossiping, they're all talking, they couldn't care less what is going on, but the children sit there and gaze at me, gaze me in the eyes. Lord, he says, I don't know how the message is going to get through to this people. They're so stiff-necked. And then, in verse 10, you've got a little thing, which is wonderful truth. Unfortunately, it's not what the Hebrew means. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And what they've tried to do is translate the untranslatable. Because here, you've got, actually, the sound that they used to make when Isaiah was Bible teaching. They used to listen, and as soon as his back was turned, they said, Oh, blah, 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 nag, 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 nag. That's it. You see, may you be convicted, any of you who may have done that after one of my Bible studies. And that's what he says. And he is actually quoting them. He says, I know what you say. Blah, 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 blah. You see? And he says, that's what the word of God means to you. Absolutely nothing. It's on the matter in the Hebrew. You know, he's taking off the sound that they make. 
And so he says, okay, I warn you, he says, if you won't listen to the message in Hebrew, the day's coming when it won't be spoken to you in Hebrew. Now that's a warning. And remember, these Jews understood about the fifth cycle of discipline, that God disciplines Israel sometimes by taking them away into foreign nations. And what he's saying is, the day will come when you will only be able to speak the foreign language. And the message will only get to you in the foreign language. That's what he's saying. Look what he says, verse 11, and here is the prophecy of tongues, for with stammering lips, which is how they thought of the Gentile languages, they didn't think they were beautiful, right? They'd never heard English, of course, but they didn't think it was, it was beautiful language. They thought Hebrew was the only language that could possibly exist as far as beauty was concerned. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, and it is a sign of judgment coming upon the Jews. And the reason he will speak in another language to the Jews is this, he says, verse 13, but the word of the Lord was unto them, blah, 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 and it's the same as in verse, uh, verse 10. Blah, 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 blah. I spoke the word of God to them, and I may as well have, have not bothered at all. It was like speaking to a brick wall. They went away, they mimicked, they scorned, but they didn't receive the word of the Lord. So blah, 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 that they might go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. And he says, the result of their rejection is just simply this, that they will come into bondage and they will go into discipline and specifically into the fifth cycle of discipline. And the sign that they are in danger of doing just that is the prophecy of tongues. There it is. Look at, at the message, by the way, verse 12, and this was the message of Jesus, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. And Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it was blah, 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 as far as they were concerned, and they rejected. What does tongues on Pentecost mean? It means that God graciously warned them. Israel, I came on time. My hands were full of blessing for you. But you missed the appointment because of your unbelief and because of your rejection of my son. And I warn you through these tongues, I warn you that the day is coming and soon when you will be cut off from the purposes of God. Now there it is. But isn't it glorious that on that very day, the day of Pentecost, God hadn't finished with the world. His plan of redemption hadn't been thwarted or tripped up. He simply moved straight through into his next phase. Because on that day, the church of Jesus Christ came into existence. Praise God. And do you know, isn't that glorious? Because we know this. Today, we live in the church of Jesus Christ, but we know Israel's got a future. And that means the day is coming when the church will end and Israel's coming back into the purposes of God. And as soon as you realize that, certain questions must arise in, in your head. Like, oh, if Israel's coming back, what's going to happen to the church then? Where will the church be? Where are we going? What's going to happen to us? I'll be answering those questions in a few weeks' time. <laughs> also, you say, now hold on, but I thought the next thing after the church was tribulation, wasn't it? I thought we got that. Ah, now the question comes... Does this period of tribulation affect the church? Or does it affect the Jews and the church? Or does it only affect the Jews? And that's an important question as well, which we will be answering in, in the course of time. But Israel's coming back. 
The day of Pentecost to them was a miraculous day, but they missed it. And they were in status quo, rebellion, when the day came. God poured out his graciousness. But notice his grace, grace even to the Jews today. If a Jew repents today, then he comes into the church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a blessing? The Gentiles are in. Let me therefore end today's session just in Romans chapter 11, where Paul, who understood the church as no one understood it, speaks of his own natural people, the Jews. And his message is not the message that you hear some people preaching today, that the Jews are finished. No, no. His message is one of tremendous hope, even for the Jewish nation. Right? And I'm going to begin verse 1, first of all. And here is Paul speaking. I say then, he says, has God cast away his people? Has he thrown them on the rubbish heap so they'll never be used again because now his highest purpose, the church of Jesus Christ, has come in? And that's what you hear, isn't it? Today, from many, many Bible teachers, what does Paul say? God forbid. He says, oh, it's rubbish. Absolute nonsense. And then, you must read the whole chapter for yourself. He goes on to define it. And my heart just leaps with excitement when I read this chapter. Go to verse 11. Let's take it up there. I say then, he says, have the Jews stumbled that they should fall? Has this time on this season of unbelief, does that mean they are finished then? God forbid, he says again. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. Isn't that wonderful? Through what Israel didn't do after the death of Jesus, we've come into glorious blessing. And because they missed their appointment on the day of Pentecost, we kept it. Through no great thing, you know, no, no uh, um, glory to ourselves, God made sure we kept it. You see? What, he says, because that happened, wonderful blessing has spread even to the Gentiles. But do you notice the purpose of our blessing? Not that we'll be blessed, but look, for this purpose, for to provoke them to jealousy. And Paul has Israel in mind more than anything else. Oh yes, you Gentiles, you're gloriously blessed, aren't you? But it's not for you, it's for Israel. To provoke them to jealousy until finally they say, who are these pipsqueaks who are going around talking as if they have the oracles of God? We've got the oracles of God. And then they'll come back into blessing. Hallelujah. Then it goes on. Now, if the fall of them, and that's what happened in AD 33, be the riches of the world, and it is, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. In other words, the day's coming when they're going to come into fullness. And if their rejection and their fall means blessing and riches for the world, what on earth does their acceptance back mean? Wow, it's blessing that we cannot conceive of. It's so magnificent and wonderful. And then he goes on. Now, verse 17 if some of the branches were broken off, he's talking of a plant, using the analogy of a plant, and Israel was broken off like some of the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, he really had it in for these old Gentiles, didn't he? You're only a wild old olive tree. And you, a wild old olive tree, were grafted in amongst them and with them, 
partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. And beloved, I want you to know that any people who say they are spiritual Israel and God has finished with the nation of Israel are boasting against the branches and they are not obeying the word that Paul gives them in Romans 11. Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. In other words, you came out of the Jews. The Jews didn't come out of you. Do remember where you've come from, beloved, he says. Paul always says it. It was the Jew first and then the Gentile. The Jew first, then the Gentile. There it is. Thou wilt say that branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Proud. Well, he says, because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear, he says. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest also he spare not thee. And it is significant that in the history of the church, those areas which have spiritualized about Israel have not lasted more than a hundred years. North Africa was where the spiritualization, the allegorical school of interpretation of prophecy began, and today, of course, it's Mohammedan through, 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 and through. And the Bible uh, uh, colleges of last century, especially in the States, they show it. Those who stuck by a fundamentalist point of view and supported Israel, they're still going strong today. And what's happened to the others? They're in apostasy and modernism. And as far as God's concerned, they're cut off from his purposes. And that's why we as a fellowship stand fast by Israel. For by standing fast with Israel, we stand fast to the tenets of our belief and bless the blessing of God will remain upon us in the most wonderful way. Praise God. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. And verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be in, and so all Israel shall be saved. Hallelujah. And every person we lead to the Lord, it may be the last person. Hallelujah. And God will say, well, they're all in now. And the next phase will come slotting into existence. Praise God. We're going to see what will happen to the church. And we'll see this marvelous secret that God kept for in the past ages. Let's remember Israel in our prayers. Right? Let's pray for Israel and stand by them. For God yet has a purpose in that nation. Amen.